continue in our worship ministry of God's Word. This gospel, the 19th chapter, John 19, we'll take up the reading of the Word in verse 23. Let's stand together as we hear the enduring Word of the living God of heaven. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garment and made four parts, each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his, uh, the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we are assembled before you in worship, as we come to hear your word open and explained, we look to you in dependence upon your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to all who believe. We pray that your spirit would bless the preaching of the word which he inspired through the Apostle John so long ago, that this timeless, living, active word would be effective and powerful even in our lives. We might see Christ with greater clarity and have a greater understanding of his love and his compassion, and that callous hearts would be broken upon the rock and come forth rejoicing in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You think about your own circumstances, we've all had those occasions of pain, great excruciating pain. And, and what's our desire? We want to escape the pain. We want to have the pain relieved, re released. We want to be free from it. And yet when dying, men frequently think of those they love. You've seen the movie perhaps of the soldiers of fellow one has been hit, he, he knows he's going to die, and he'll uh, scribble a note, he'll, he'll give something to one of his comrades, he says, make sure my wife gets this, and so often in it is you know, assurances of his love, even in dying, that he cares for her. There's a sharp contrast between what is happening here on the cross. We saw last week as our Savior suspended between heaven and earth, crucified, dying, bleeding for us by his blood, we are healed. And through the shedding of his blood is the remission of our sins. There's this tremendous agony of the, the very experience of the cross, but even more so Christ is receiving the wrath of God, that he would save us from our sins, that he would break the power of sin in our life and the power that death has over us, that he would indeed defeat our foe, crushing the serpent's head. In these things, he's magnifying God, but he displays to us his love for us. There's a great contrast here in this scene as we 
uh, by John uh, are brought to look at what's happening beneath the cross. We see a great contrast between what are the priorities of sinful men and what are the priorities of the most holy, merciful, and gracious Son of God between the execution, uh, the execution of the sentence upon Jesus, the crucifixion, and the dying of our Savior on that cross, which we are yet to come to, John, by the Holy Spirit, records these two events that we might think in, in, in the larger scheme of what's happening are relatively insignificant in light of the magnitude of Christ being crucified, but what's happening at the foot of the cross was written also for our instruction. We will miss out on important insight not only into our hearts, but into the heart of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we don't look at these things. Children, I want you to listen as we look at two different things that take place beneath the cross of Jesus. We're going to see hard hearts, callous indifference to what's happening on the cross. But then also we will see tremendous compassion and care by Christ even as he hangs dying. We begin first with a callous indifference. This first scene is captured by John in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, and each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. So we see from there there's four soldiers. And they're engaged in what was a custom. This was their practice. Uh, someone who's being crucified has no need of earthly goods, in, whether by decree or just something that they took to themselves. It was the practice of the soldiers that whatever this dying individual had as his possessions, they held themselves. They divided amongst themselves. Here we see them dividing what little Jesus had. Remember, he said, you know, foxes have their holes. The birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus lived out his life with very few resources. And here we find as he is dying, even hanging naked before the world, that his clothes are here in the hands of soldiers at the foot of the cross. This is significant because all four Gospels record this event. It's in all four of the Gospels. Uh, we won't focus on all the details to have a more complete picture. We want to look at what John is having to say. But these articles of clothing would have different values depending on what they were and, and what condition they were in. Mark indicates also that they cast lots for each of the items. Mark, or The items then would have been his head wrap, that turban that they would put around their head to shield him from the heat of the sun. He would have had a belt, an outer garment, and then this long seamless cloth, a tunic that was woven, in Jesus' case, as one long garment, one long piece of fabric. This garment was worn next to the skin. It's what a man would have taken up and wrapped around himself and over his shoulders and then girded around him with his belt. And then he would have this outer coat that he would wear upon it. This tunic was of greater value than most tunics, this, this one being of one continuous weaving. It was seamless, you know, of something of poor quality, it might have had several pieces stitched together, but this one was of a greater value because somebody literally spent days, if not weeks, at a loom weaving it. What was it made of? We're not told. Highly likely that it was fine linen. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the high priest wore such a garment. 
a seamless tunic, one long weaving. And from this, it communicates to us, this is something of great value. And you see that even with the, with the uh, soldiers. It's like, let's not tear it apart, which probably would have been a difficult thing to do. We say, no, let's cast lots for it. And then John, who would have been there near the cross, near enough to hear the conversation, tells us the conversation that took place between those soldiers. And it tells us something to them. Then they said, that's the soldiers, amongst themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. They see the value of it. No doubt each of them desire to own it, that it become theirs. And so they agree to cast lots for it. How was the casting lots done? We don't know. Perhaps they rolled dice. It's not clear. But they had a means whereby, with so-called randomness, we know that all things are under God's dominion. And so even as they would have cast their lots, God, sovereign over that, would have determined who got their garment. This is the normal practice. You see what's going on here? Children, you see the condition of the hearts of these men? To them, it's just another crucifixion. Just another criminal dying. We've been here. We've done this. Just another day on the job. Going through their normal routines, their tradition of dividing up what little there was that these men had. Well, what's unique about this crucifixion? This is not just any crucifixion. This is not a guilty man hanging on the cross. In and of himself, he's without sin. He's the holy Lamb of God, spotless. He's the Lamb of God who came into the world to save sinners. And so therefore, he is being crucified. What's being happened, what is happening is the greatest uh, event in all of history, this tremendous transaction where the innocent one becomes guilty and dies in the place of the guilty, in the place of guilty sinners, so that guilty sinners can be redeemed and brought unto God. And they're casting lots for articles that belong to this one. And we know from the other gospel accounts that you know there's going to be an earthquake, it's going to be dark in the middle of the day. These These men are going to come to understand that Something remarkable is happening. Even one of them will say, surely this, was, this one was the Son of God. But for right, at this point, they're just they're going through the moments, motions. What a remarkable event. We, because of the revelation of God's word, we know who this one is. So we said, this, this is God's Son come in the flesh. This is God incarnate who came into the world. This is the one who uh, described to the disciples as being Jacob's ladder, the one who came down from heaven, the one who spans from earth to heaven that he might bring sinners home to God, the one who completes and brings about the final exodus to bring sinners back into the presence and back into the fellowship of God, back into communion with God. We heard last week that... Uh, this one who's hanging uh, on the cross has a sign that Pilate has put over his head. King of the Jews. He's put it into the three languages of the people of that day. Suspended. The God-man. The Son of God. The Son of Mary. Jesus of Nazareth. Nailed to a Roman cross. Here is the only redeemer of God's elect. Here is the one who has declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he's the one 
who opens the way to the Father through this crucifixion. And they're indifferent. Just another crucifixion. Jesus hangs condemned, not for the deeds that he's done. He's hanging in our place. He's hanging in the place of sinners. The wrath that he receives from the Father is the wrath that we deserve. He receives it upon himself as our substitute so that we may not know the wrath of God. How can we be calloused and indifferent about that? But these men did not know. So when we look at the foot of the cross, we see this indifference, cold-hearted and callous. Just another day on the job. And as they're there, what would they hear? The crowd that was gathered, what are they doing? They're reviling Christ. They're reviling this one who is the Son of God. We're told that they're mocking him. Matthew records that they said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. There's the scorn that the people shouted. Ah, you who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The people were not neutral. And even as these men are at the foot of the cross, they're not neutral. They may not have been shouting those things, but the curses and the mocking actually catches up and carries them along because we're told by Matthew that the two thieves who hung on the cross and the soldiers also joined in in the mocking. The, the booty's been divided up. Each of them's got their little parcel of things. And they're listening to the crowd and, and they're hearing the people heckle and harass and mock the one who hangs and they join in. The soldiers, and this is what Luke records, the soldiers also joined and they mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. This is mockery upon their part. Children, you see what's happening here? Here's Jesus, the one long foretold by the prophets, standing in our place, and the soldiers mock him. It's not unique. This is something that continues even to our day. People, they, 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 if they hear about this scene, perhaps you're sharing the gospel with them. You take them to the cross. You explain what's happening. And you, you give mocking responses, indifference, callous indifference, carelessness. You tell them of the condition of their soul, that they're dead in their trespasses, and yet there's hope in their Savior. And people will shrug or they'll mock, walk away. But this is no offhanded event. Because look at what John goes on to tell us. These, these soldiers said, let us not tear it, that is the, the tunic, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is not the soldiers speaking. They finished speaking. And John explains, he says, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A prophet foretold us. Who was that prophet? This is David, the psalmist of Israel. This is the prophet, David, prophesying in Psalm 22. If you turn with me to Psalm 22, David writes a psalm out of his own uh, experience. Uh, Some of the psalms is clearly David is uh, being given a prophetic word. He sees something. He's looking for his son that God has promised that will come. He worships that son. He calls him Lord. 
But David experienced things sometimes that uh, were a picture or a type pointing to Christ. And, and David, here in Psalm 22, uh, perhaps he is afflicted and suffering, and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But for all these words to be David's word, David would be engaged in extreme speech, what we would call hyperbole. But it's very likely that what David's doing here is he's moved along by the Holy Spirit and he is prophesying concerning his greater son. Concerning this very moment that we see John describe that all the gospel accounts record of Jesus hanging upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know the answer to the question because the scripture reveals it. God has turned on him because God is of holier eyes and to look upon sin. And Jesus has become sin for us. He's forsaken that we who are far from God could be brought near. He's dying that we who are dead in sin might be given eternal life. Look at verse 6. Think of Christ on the cross. Think of his condition. Think of his suffering. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. They're standing around him. Their disp- the despisement in their hearts is clear. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are the very things that are being said at the foot of the cross. David, by the Spirit, knew it and wrote it, though he did not fully comprehend it. But then we hear the words of Christ continued, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And you see here that Christ is in his infancy, in his wee childhood, he gains the capacity for thinking and understanding. God makes it clear who he is, who he belongs to, and begins to open to his understanding as a human what he's come to do. And we see, we, we referred to this uh, when we were thinking of the garden and the arrest scene, although it's true at the foot of the cross. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And here we see something of the physical things that Jesus underwent. All my bones are out of joint My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. We see that fulfilled in the next portion with the piercing of his side. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. We will hear, he cries out, I thirst. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet here. David prophesies in the manner which Christ would die, that he would be crucified. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the oxen, all these things, even in his suffering, Christ looks to God, forsaken as the sin-bearing Redeemer, and yet he looks to God, his hope is in God, his faith is steadfast in God, knowing that the Father will indeed deliver him, raise him from the dead, 
knowing that the Father has given to him the authority and the power to raise himself from the dead, knowing that the Holy Spirit will raise him from the dead. And in the midst of his affliction and suffering, he looks to God. There's an application for us. When we're afflicted, when we're suffering, perhaps the affliction is temptations that keep beating on the door of our heart. It's an affliction that we suffer here on earth. The world does not care about these things. The world just goes on sinning. But we who have a new heart, we love Christ, and we want to keep Christ's commandment, and we are harassed with temptations. Let us not forsake God. Let us not curse God. Let us learn, like our Savior, to call upon the name of the Lord, that he would deliver us, that he would keep us, that he would not forsake us, and that we would not forsake his paths of righteousness. But here we see, children, the very thing that John tells us happened at the foot of the cross with the soldiers dividing his garments, David prophesied that this would be over, I'm thinking of the, the generations, this is um, nearly 2,000 years before that David prophesied these things. Is that not remarkable? And so we go back to John. David moved along by the Holy Spirit, tell us of these events. And John is telling us that here is the fulfillment. John knows this 22nd Psalm. And he understands what's happening. He says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now let us understand, John's not saying the Scripture said this, therefore it has to happen. God foresaw it and foretold it through David that it would happen. And here it is, being fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So it was foretold. That's exactly what took place. There's many, many prophecies. Those of you familiar with the book of Matthew, Matthew's account of the gospel, Matthew goes to great lengths. He's writing largely to a Jewish audience. He's seeking for the Jews to understand that Jesus is their Messiah. And he keeps saying, it is written, and he sows fulfillment in Christ over and over and over again, that they would understand that this one they've rejected, this is after the cross, this one that they've rejected is their Messiah. He's the one who's come to save them. And indeed, there is salvation in his name. In the course of the scriptures, as one Bible scholar has researched, there's a number of distinct prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus. 332 distinct prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Some of your mathematicians, I'm not. But statistical probabilities, and this is a huge number, can't even comprehend it, I, and I can't say billions, quadrillions, it's bigger than that. But he calculated that, that one man would fulfill all 332 of these prophecies is one in 84 with 84 zeros after it. I'm sorry, not 84, 87 zeros after it. It's like 80, uh, 84 times 10 to the big exponent number. This is a massive, it's, you would say it's statistically impossible. But God is the God of the impossible. God was sending his son. And so God knew what he had decreed for his son to do, what Christ had agreed to do. And so through the prophets, through hundreds and hundreds of years, very specific things are said about the Lord's servant, the Messiah, the Christ, the seed of the woman who would come. Clearly, what do we see here? Children, what we see here is what we have often heard me said. We see God over it all, in it all, and through it all. God is at work governing, bringing this to pass. Let's return to the scene. Jesus hanging, bearing the curse. 
for our sin, the wrath of God in order to deliver us from the curse of sin. He hangs naked. William Hendrickson remarks, I'm not quoting, paraphrasing, though, remember what Ham did to his father Noah after the flood? He saw his father naked and he laughed. If his deed was singled out because it was so deplorable, what about the soldiers, what they did, removing Christ's clothing and dividing his garments among themselves by casting lots? This causes to pause and shock. If what Ham did was shocking, how much more so this, what the soldiers are doing? John indicates that we should pause. Look at what he says at the end of verse 24. He's reported these things. He says, therefore, the soldiers did these things. He's drawing our attention to it. He's very explicit. What they're doing is deplorable and despicable, that they should be so hardened and callous they not realize that above them hangs their creator. Think about this. Jesus remains in his person fully God. He is sustaining those soldiers in their very being, that the breath of life would be in them as creator, sustainer, and they're mocking him even as we go about our days and people all around us mock the God who made them and sustains them. Oh, how people need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How it needs to infect and affect our hearts and souls that we are animated by the realities of who he is. Yes, the eternal God, decrees of God are being fulfilled, but we should pause with abhorrence at what the soldiers did. And here is one of those paradoxes. We should also pause with adoration. That's hard to hold those two in tension, isn't it? And it's really when we come to Christ and the things of the gospel that we see that. Abhorred at their action and yet adoring. Here we see God fulfilling the very prophecy that Christ is fulfilling all that the Father has given him to do, including suffering the shame that we who are filled with shame because of our sin could be delivered and brought to God without guilt, without shame, without stain, covered in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how glorious is our Redeemer. How precious is Christ to the sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord. Our dear friends, what's your response to this scene at the cross? Children, you see this scene. You've heard it described. What's your response to this scene? Is it just another crucifixion? Nothing to see here. Let's just move along. Is your response calloused indifference to a dying Savior? Sadly, for many, many people down through the ages, that's all they've got. They hear the cross. So what? But for many, as God has had mercy, we see this scene. We marvel. We wonder. We weep and we rejoice. But there's another scene beneath the cross of Jesus that John records. It's a scene of compassion and care. It's our second point, compassion and care. Look at verse 25. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Yes, notice there's three Marys there. Quite remarkable. John writes that there's these four women plus the disciple whom Jesus loved, the way that John refers to himself throughout his gospel. There, standing near the cross, even at the foot of the cross, near enough that John heard the discussion, the conversation of the soldiers. They're very nigh. 
And when we compare all the Gospels, we discover there's actually many women. Matthew 27, verse 55 says, Matthew records many women who followed Jesus were looking from afar. So there's other women, there's many women, a host of women who are there at the crucifixion scene. They have come out even as the disciples have fled. They are there at the cross. We know about these women as they're referred to in the Gospels. They come from many different backgrounds. We often find them in the Gospels there with Jesus, making provision out of their own means to support Jesus and his disciples as they carry out the itinerant ministry moving throughout Israel. John tells us of four women in particular. Jesus' mother, Mary, he doesn't name her, we know that's her name. Mary's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, we know really nothing about him, and Mary Magdalene. Matthew, Mark, they list others. And indeed, it is very likely by comparing the Gospels that the mother of the sons of Zebedee is also known and recorded as Salome and is his mother's sister, the same person. And so James and John, we often understand to be Jesus' cousins. This other Mary, Mary's sister, obviously would be his aunt, and we believe. We can't prove that. It's not explicitly declared, but comparing the Gospels, we come away with that understanding. And what we know here, though, is each of these women is mentioned various times in the Gospels. And so it not surprise us that Mary Magdalene is present here. Of all the women, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. What, what level of magnitude, or what level of, uh, of re- honor and respect, what level of love would be in our hearts to have been infested with seven demons who would torment us day and night, and Christ has cast them out and also given her faith unto life. She is a very grateful disciple, one of the most grateful disciples that we see in the Gospels. She's followed Jesus, and we're told that she supported Jesus out of her substance. Now, we dare not think that this is a woman described in Luke 7, verse 36 through 50, a woman of ill repute who pours out ointment on Jesus' feet in the Pharisee's house, and he said, surely, if he was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is. That is not that, Mary. That's very clear from the text. Some people say that. We should not believe that. But again, we must say we should not be surprised to find Mary Magdalene, a woman delivered of seven demons here. We also find her at the tomb. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are preparing to bury him, Mary Magdalene is there. We find her on Sunday morning, early in the morning. We find Mary Magdalene at the tomb as a witness to the resurrection. But let us note something. None of the 11 apostles, except for John, are present but There are several women, many women, women who have often been overlooked in the ministry of Jesus. But here we see them. We see their love for Jesus, unbridled, overflowing, willing to risk even their very lives. For if indeed you know, they were deemed to be a threat and his followers and a threat to the nation and to the Roman Empire, surely they could be seized. But their love compels them. They're willing to risk all to be near him. They care for Jesus. They're not ashamed to be seen at the foot of the cross weeping while he hangs dying. William Hendrickson says rightly, all honor to them. All honor to them, to their courage and to their love. Let us take a lesson. Let us not be ashamed of Christ and his gospel 
As Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the cross. I preach the cross. I preach Christ and him crucified. Let that be our message. Well, John has set the scene, and then he draws our attention to something most remarkable to take place. There's these women. He describes them. He names most of them. He identifies all four of them. And in verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Behold, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. We have some evidence that John or his family had a home in Jerusalem as well as their home in Galilee. But what we see here, part of Jesus' suffering is in that he is here. We, our attention is drawn to here's his mother. Part of his suffering is to look as he's dying in agony. There's his mother suffering, seeing her son dying, her firstborn hanging on a cross. Jesus addresses them. First he addresses his mother, then he addresses John. Woman. Why not mother? One of the commentators has suggested, I think it's helpful, the word mother, word mother would have only driven the sword deeper into her already pierced heart. For indeed it's what Simeon foretold Mary when she and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple and when he was eight days old. Simon prophesied, telling Mary that she would suffer much and even have her own heart pierced with many sorrows because of this child. But woman, not mother, for here Jesus is teaching Mary that she must no longer think of Jesus as being only her son. Mary must begin to look upon Jesus as her Lord. Yes, this is her son, her firstborn, the one of, of the uh, divine conception, the Holy Spirit coming upon her. But Jesus would have her understand that he must not, she must not view him this way anymore. As Mary grows to understand the truth of who he is, her suffering would be natural, but it will become of a different nature, that she will see him not as her son suffering, but as her Savior suffering. Even as we look at the cross and we see Christ suffering, he's our Savior, our Redeemer, that Mary would also understand him that way. His suffering and his death was necessary to fulfill the glorious purpose of saving sinners, saving Mary, a sinner as well. And indeed, time will pass and Mary will come to understand these things. Mary's suffering and seeing her son dying must be replaced with something higher and replaced with adoration. And so Jesus addresses her as woman. And so Jesus addresses his mother and he commits her into the care of John for the rest of her days. Now some might say, well, why, is it, why wasn't Mary entrusted to her other son? She's got other sons. She has daughters as well. Why didn't he say, you know, go stay with your boys? You know, make sure they take care of you. Why John? Well, the answer is most likely because Jesus' brothers were not yet converted. It's clear from the Gospels. They didn't have faith. They, they too, were with the crowd. They thought he was insane and out of his mind. They had not yet been converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that some of them certainly are. We have books in the New Testament written by them. There's one more thing I want us to see and understand before 
that uh, in this context that would apply to where we live as we're seeking to evangelize the people around us. I want you to remember this account, this exchange, how Jesus speaks to his mother. It's worth declaring that Mary was just another human mother. No immaculate conception. No special elevated status. Yes, she has the most remarkable positions. She is God's chosen vessel to be the means by which Christ came into the world. The Son of God was incarnate. She is blessed among all women because God has selected her to bear the Christ child. And yet she was and is and continues to be a woman. But she is that woman that God spoke of in the garden when he addressed Adam and Eve after their sin, that there would be the seed of the woman. And that seed is Christ who crushed the serpent's head. She is that woman. But she is a sinner. She also needs a Savior. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Many of you know J.C. Ryle's beautiful language, but listen to what he has to say here. I'm quoting, We surely need no stronger proof than we have here that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was never meant to be honored as divine, prayed to, worshipped, trusted in, as the friend and patron of sinners, patroness of sinners. Common sense points out that she, who needed the care and the protection of another, was never likely to help men and women to heaven, or to be in any sense a mediator between God and man. It is not too much to say, however painful it may be to assert, for some to hear, that of all the inventions of the Church of Rome, there never was one more utterly devoid of foundation, both in Scripture and in reason, than the doctrine of Mary worship. Amen. Amen. Unequivocally, amen. We stand on this truth. Mary is blessed of all women, but she's a woman. She's of our same nature. She's a sinner who needed a Savior. And here we see this scene. John gives us this picture of incredible compassion and the care. And as we look in this scene, it is critical to see and embrace it and once again marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pull back the lens just a little bit. Jesus uses the word, I'm sorry, John the Apostle uses the term woman six times in his gospel. I thought there were seven. I'm looking for seven. It's just not there. I think the seventh we find in the book of Revelation or implied as the church. But John uses this term, woman. You see, Jesus came into the world to save his people. The Father gave a people to him to be what? His bride. Woman. And I think John uses this literary device, this specific term, on purpose, that we would be reminded that Jesus came to save a church. Remember the woman at the well in Sychar. He addresses her as a woman. Here's this woman. We are that woman. We are the woman at the well. We are the one who need Jesus Christ to come and offer us living water, even from himself. Everything in the scriptures began with a man and a woman in a garden. We go to the book of Revelation. This is closing out. What do we see there? A man, that's a capital M, and a woman, the church. We see Christ 
and his bride, the church. That's how the scriptures conclude. And we see that man and woman in the presence of God, even God himself as that man, in communion and fellowship with no hindrance or barriers of sin. We see the exodus complete. We see that what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out. We see the culmination of God through Christ has brought them back. He has brought back the woman, the church, made up of men and women, boys and girls, in his presence, in fellowship, in communion with him. So for this reason, I think that Jesus calls her woman, that we would, we would look beyond Mary. But I think also that we should look at Mary Magdalene, who gets called woman later, as we'll see in the next chapter in the garden. Are we not Mary Magdalene? Are we not that woman filled with sin, bound in deception, worshiping demons and idols apart from the liberation of the Holy Spirit uh, through the power of Christ's salvation? We're the woman. We're the woman possessed. We're the woman that needs delivered. And we as the church are the woman who has been delivered. We've been set free. We've been raised to newness of life. We've been brought near to Christ who brings us unto God. He has saved us and delivered us from sin and the power of the devil. Jesus came to save his church. And he will present his church spotless to his father. And his father would give the church to Christ as his bride. This brief and tender scene of Mary being cared for is but a small picture of Christ's infinite care for his bride. And here he is in agony and anguish, suffering, pushing himself up to get another breath, struggling to continue until it is time for him to give up his spirit unto God. And he looks down in tenderness and compassion for woman. Because he hangs on the cross for the woman, the bride, his church. Jesus took the sins of his bride on himself so that he could pay the debt she owed. Jesus received the full wrath, the full measure of the wrath of God as he hung between heaven and earth so that he could bring his bride from earth to heaven. Jesus did all that was required to satisfy God's divine justice and to bring us washed and complete back into the garden of God, back into full fellowship with the Father, for to know the Father is eternal life. That is what we heard Jesus prayed in the opening of his prayer in John 17. This exchange with Mary and John was real and necessary for her sake and the provision that she be carried for. But let us see that Jesus, in his suffering and dying, never loses sight of why he came into the world. He came to save his people, the church. What's the application? Look at your Savior. Look at your Savior. We're going to come to the table, and we have these Christ-appointed symbols to remind us of his cross, his suffering, that he, he died in his flesh. He, he spilled forth his blood for our salvation. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember this scene at the foot of the cross of the tenderness and the compassion of Christ. Look and see him. He knows your needs, even as he knew Mary's needs. He knows your needs, beloved saints of God. And he is able to meet your needs exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you ask or think. As we're here today, we don't stand at the foot of the cross. Christ is not on a cross. We're not there literally as Mary and the other women were and John. However, we do dwell in the shadow of that cross cast across some 2,000 years of human history. That event is still of the utmost importance. 
It remains the greatest event since the days of creation. Some look at the cross and are indifferent. I hope that you're not one of them. I hope that you will see the cross in a new way, even as we see these events at the foot of the cross. Look and see the Lord and the giver of life. And let us never lose sight of the loving kindness of God, our Heavenly Father, as it was displayed in Jesus Christ. And let us love our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, help us in the midst of the confusion of our days and our worldly cares. Pull us away from carelessness and indifference. Lord, if there are any that are calloused and hardened, oh, merciful spirit, would you break their hearts on the rock, which is Christ. Lord, give us fresh a fresh look at Christ, eyes to see and behold him, his beauty and his splendor. Yes, his majesty and his might, but also his tenderness, his compassion. A bruised reed he would not break, and a smoking wick he would not snuff out. That's what we are, Lord. We rejoice to know that our Savior is tender and compassionate, but also strong to save, saving even to the uttermost. We bless you, Father, for giving us so great a Savior who has secured so great a salvation through so great a cost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing now Beneath the Cross of Jesus, number 251.